Welcome to the Executive's Lounge. This is your podcast host, Christine Fauner. We are officially in season two, where we focus on redefining leadership, one amazing story at a time. Let's get started. We head all the way to Buffalo, Wyoming today to learn the story of Sylvia Bruner. She's the director of the Jim Gatchell Memorial Museum. You've never heard of Jim Gatchell? Me either. But once you learn his story and why there's a museum with his name on it, you're going to be blown away. Our country has a really complex history with individual stories of people that bring color to those black and white photos that we come across every now and then. Sylvia helps us see people like Jim Gatchell and that he has an important story to tell. And so does she. Sylvia is a self-proclaimed history buff and has been working in the history field since 2000. She's been at the museum since 2003 and has seen her career grow over the 10 year tenure to the director of the museum. Sylvia, welcome today. It's so great to chat with you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to learn both your story and a little bit more about the story of Jim Gatchell. Where do you want to start? Um, well, let's start with Jim because he's he's fun to talk about and he's kind of the reason that I'm even here. He opened a pharmacy in Buffalo in 1900. And like many other small Western towns, Buffalo wasn't that old at that time. It was formally incorporated in 1884. So his pharmacy was the first. I'm sure it was needed. And he definitely brought an influence to the community that has, you know, far outlasted his lifespan. He also was a history buff. You know, he got interested, especially in the regional stories. There's been a lot of things to happen in Johnson County and in Wyoming. And so he started visiting all these different sites. He also was here early enough that a lot of the key players during like the real frontier era were still here. And he met them and some of them became his friends. So he had first-person narrative shared with him and then also items, things that were gifted to him. One of the interesting things I was reading about, you know, and a lot of people that listen to this podcast know, I've been doing research and searching and discovering about my own Native American history. And it was really fascinating to learn that he had some real friendships with Mm -hmm. local Natives and learned a lot from them and was gifted gifts from them. Yeah, so one of Jim's closest friends was a Northern Cheyenne warrior named Weasel Bear. And I think that Jim had probably an affinity for friendships because it seems like he just was a very, you know, outgoing people person to start with. But also his family, his father, whose real name was Prince Albert Gatchel. He was not a prince, it was just his name. I don't understand that. But he was in kind of a variety of different livelihoods over the course of his time. And so he moved the family from Wisconsin through South Dakota, eventually to Wyoming. And Jim spent a number of his formative childhood years um, growing up on the Lakota Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. So he was fluent in the language and he had a deeper understanding of a lot of the cultural values um, because he was exposed to them. And some of his closest friends there, of course, were Native children. So when he opened his drugstore here, he already had that kind of knowledge and understanding and appreciation for his fellow man. It kind of made him a magnet for those kinds of relationships. So he also started to get a reputation of being a trustworthy person. So we'd have through this region, especially in the summertime when travel is possible, you'd have folks come from the kind of outlying reservations because they needed supplies, they needed medicines, you know, all of the things that we still need. And Jim was something that they could go to. 
and he could communicate with them for starters. But he also, like I said, had that reputation of being trustworthy. So they knew that they weren't being fleeced by him. Um, and that built this super solid foundation. And as he started to display the things that were given to him in the back room of his drugstore, you know, other people would come in and they'd be like, oh, that's pretty cool. You've got so-and-so's whatever on display and you're sharing information about it. I have a cool thing that I want to give you. And so by the time Jim passed away in 1954, he had about 1,100 items. And he'd actually had to build an addition onto the back of his drugstore to house all of those things because he did display them. And by everybody's memories and accounts, he was really proud to share their stories and their information. Um, and that was the beginnings of the museum. Uh, so his family donated his collection to the county with the agreement that the county and the, the community would build a building. That was accomplished in 1957. The doors opened in May of that year, and we've been here ever since. I really love that, you know, we talk a lot about the power of storytelling and helping us understand who we are, our place in the world, how the world has operated, and really the history of where we've come from and where we're going. It's really cool that this storyteller ended up having a museum uh, built for his stories and the, the artifacts that help tell the story to this day. It is super cool. And obviously I never had the chance to meet Jim, but I do believe that he would be proud of this museum and the community that has built it in his honor. I think he would be especially happy to also know that we still have very strong relationships with our regional Native American tribes. And we're actually entrusted with safekeeping a collection that belongs to the Northern Cheyenne while they determine what they're going to do with their collection and where they're going to house it, that kind of thing. And that current relationship came about because of the historical one. We're nationally accredited by the American Alliance of Museums, and that organization sets the standards, they kind of set the bar of what museums are supposed to be. And it's a very intensive process. The museum has gone through it twice. I've gone through it once where we've got our reaccreditation. They look into literally everything you do, your community relations, your financial operations, um, if you're following best practices for how you display and store things. So the fact that we're accredited is super meaningful in our field. And um, recently this summer, we also were awarded a national medal from the Institute for Museum and Library Service which in the U.S. is the highest honor that a museum can receive. And I think he would be blown away by that, just like we were. Yeah, you recently got to go to Washington, D.C. to accept this award, I understand. We did. we did, yeah. We were nominated by one of our state senators, and there's a pretty lengthy in-depth application process. So we had to send up a lot of information about us and the museum, what we do. So out of a couple hundred applications, they filtered it to 15 libraries and 15 museums. And then in May, we got the phone call saying that we had won and that we were one of four museums and four libraries. That's really amazing. Getting an award for knowing and understanding your exceptionality is pretty amazing. It really has been, you know, in the application packet, the hardest question for me to answer was, why do you deserve this award? And it wasn't hard because I don't believe in what we do. That's not the case at all. But you know that you're kind of in competition with 
huge institutions, institutions that have been around a hundred years longer than we have, you know, so it's, I think that human nature of inherent comparison and you're like, well, how are we in a, we could get this award, but we know that we're in competition with the Franklin Institute from Philadelphia and they opened in 1825 and their budget is massive. But then it's also really good, I think, and healthy sometimes to actually stop and remember all the good things that have been accomplished and how far you've come. So looking at the museum's you know, more recent history, we hit some real lows and we pulled out of it. And I think it was that commitment from the staff and the board along the way of we're tiny, but we're always going to do the absolute best that we can. And it was recognized by IMLS, which is amazing. If you're a humble leader or you're a, you're a person that really believes in the impact and influence on giving to the greater good and, and impacting your community in such a positive way, we can underestimate those successes, right? We can underestimate the actual impact or question it comparatively to maybe mm -hmm. bigger, bigger fish in the sea. So I think it's really cool that you've, you've mentioned that, that, you know, stopping and recognizing your own successes and your own capabilities um, rather than comparing yourself to others um, does show that you have some exceptional qualities. That's really cool. It can be a real morale booster too, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, you're going to be riding that high of meeting the first yeah. lady for a while, I think. Oh, yeah. We are so fortunate here. So we are a very small institution. We have a full-time professional staff of three, counting myself. And as you would guess, our budget is not that big either. But when we got the word from IMLS that all three of us could actually attend the ceremony at the White House, <laughs> it was a no-brainer. It was like, we're going to make this happen. I, I really don't care. We are going to find airline tickets. We are going to go. Everybody is going to participate because it is this whole team that has made this happen. And the next day after I learned that and shared that information, um, we had an anonymous donor come in with a $5,000 check. Said this is to cover the cost of sending the other two employees because IMLS covered the cost to send me and a community member. And I think this is a really cool thing they set up for each institution that won, they you know, kind of require the presence of the director to be there, but they also selected a community member, somebody who had been affected by your institution. And obviously we know this person, um, her name is Keelan Byram. She used to work here, but to be able to experience it with the whole staff was amazing. Amazing. Realizing that you've impacted somebody so deeply that maybe you didn't know. What a great part of the story as well. Yeah. Coming back to you and, and this work that you've done and all these accomplishments that have been coming your way from the hard work, how did you get into history and how did that lead you to the Jim Gatchell Museum? So I was a homeschool kid and grew up in very rural Wyoming, maybe borderline isolated actually beyond rural, but I needed a summer job. I, you know, I think it was 15 and I had goals of things that I wanted to buy and do um, about a mile down the road from my parents' house. There's a state historic site it's called Fort Phil Kearney. It's a pretty cool site, a fort that was in existence in the 1860s. And they needed summertime help in the bookstore. And so I remember I rode my bike down to apply, got the job. 
and just started to get more and more into it. I had a little interest in history just through school previously, but I think being physically in an area and learning about all the things that had happened there, and it wasn't just the things that happened on a particular day, but the way that they had an effect on the region's history for years to come started to kind of be meaningful to me. This museum was hiring for part-time collections work. And I thought, well, okay, I could do that. That sounds kind of interesting. Had no idea what I was getting into and took the position. Eventually that turned into a full-time position. In the meantime, I got married, went to school piecemeal, mostly online or night classes. So definitely taken a very non-traditional path. And I always recommend when we have young people working at the museum, just go get your schoolwork, get it it done, get it done. Because every year that I get older, it just gets a little harder and harder to make that time for school. And I'm not done yet, you know, and I'm going to finish, but also my husband and I had twin boys um, almost three years ago. And I'm, I think justifiably for myself, I've made the decision that I will not be going to school while they're this little. I want to just kind of soak up my time with them, but I will down the road. You know, I think the traditional path is becoming a little antiquated because it it is hard to stay a course. I think as we get older, we recognize that the dips and turns, all the things that happen in life happen. And there really is no timeline for us. We might have goals, right? Like you have this goal of, of it's important to you to finish your educational journey. But I think there's a certain point in life where we realize like things happen that we can't predict or that we really have to reprioritize. I feel like there's a lot of pressure put on young people to have a plan, to know what they're going to do. Who are you going to be? What do you want to, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? All those things. And some are really driven and they know that and some don't know that. And that is okay because when you're young, you have an experience, you know, all the things that are going to happen. So learn to adjust and kind of go with that flow. Like you said, have goals, but also understand that sometimes your goals move around and, you know, that is also okay. But I've always kind of felt deep down that, no, I can do this. If I try my best, if I put my work into it, why couldn't I do this? And I think that has been very helpful for me in navigating through life as things have changed. You know, in my time here at the museum, I started in collections. Uh, I was pretty happy in my little basement office, kind of tucked away by myself, working with artifacts and not people. Um, But then the situation at the museum changed. The previous director left under really terrible circumstances. The museum was in the deficit, about $9,000. I was given a paycheck and told there was no money for me to actually cash it. I was also fired for a couple of days and then unfired. It was a disaster. I learned a valuable lesson during that time. That accreditation process I mentioned earlier, it was happening during that time period. So when you're supposed to be showing that you're at your best, we were just starting to come out of our worst And we had on-site reviewers. So these are folks that volunteer for the process and they're in the museum field too. We had two gentlemen that run museums in different parts of the U.S. And they kind of caught me one day and said, you know, like accreditation hat off, museum director hat on here. Here's some advice, never waste a good crisis. And 
it made so much sense to me that, that you know their point was there's no better time to implement changes. Everything that you see that's wrong that needs to be fixed, you do it now and you just start climbing up. And we did. We regrouped and we did that. And the museum has just been hitting like success after success since then. I don't know, you know, if I would have put that together myself without somebody kind of sitting me down and saying, hey, you take this disaster of an opportunity and you make it into something good. And it just gave me a, like a plan. You mentioned that you have this small but mighty team. How did you guys band together? How did you create that bond in the work? Through a lot of communication and honesty, which had not really been present prior. And honestly, I was kind of embarrassed um, because there was, you know, a couple of other people at the same time we'd worked together. We hadn't really got along. We definitely weren't cohesive. Um, if we had issues, everybody would just go to the director and he didn't manage people at all. So for us to kind of hit that bottom and to know that we had and that we're still left standing. And if we want to make a success of this, it has to be together because we are also under the county structure. And there's been a hiring freeze on for like 10 years now due to the budget situation within the county. So you, you can't just be like, oh, I'm going to clean the slate and start all over. That is literally not going to happen. And I remember just having some real heart-to-heart -heart conversations of, okay, guys, can we let everything in the past go? Can we start over new? And can we take tomorrow as like the first day of good things? We all meant it when we agreed to do that. And we suddenly became a cohesive group. We were able to hire a professional artist, not a collections person. And her impact on this place has been absolutely amazing. The creativity and the empathy that she has brought to the table has been ins insanely helpful. Um, I feel like her influence has made the rest of us want to be better people. And I don't think she realizes that, <laughs> but it's definitely true. And so once in a while, you know, we'll feel ourselves starting to kind of get a little off the rails again, or we start to get a little salty. And it's like, okay, we need to have a sit down conversation in hammer out who's doing what, how are we doing, how can I help you? Am I, as the boss, am I giving you the tools to succeed at what I have asked you to do? Because sometimes I haven't given them those tools and I need to recognize that and do better. What I hear is that you sat down and said, you know, no, we're going to step into this uncomfortable space because we have two choices. We can work together or not. And I want to <laughs> give that choice to my people and give that choice to us. And I think that's a really mature, wise, reflective space to come from as a leader. I think I kind of applied that because that was not what happened with our previous director. We and so often learn what we should do from what others did not do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. So I've had a couple of bosses in my history that have provided really strong examples of what I don't want to be. and. It's not that I just do the exact opposite, but it's definitely made me more thoughtful in how I try to approach things. Because I remember watching one of my coworkers kind of struggle. And when I went to our director and said, hey, you know, how do I handle this? I got no help. I remember actually Googling, like, how do you be a supervisor? How do you, you know, how do you get through conflict with an employee or a coworker? 
And I think I got some good advice off of the, the great interwebs out there because it did make me recognize that as this person's immediate supervisor, I was not helping her. I was not giving her the tools. I wasn't communicating what I wanted, expectations. And so she felt like she was floundering. And when we had that kind of conversation, everything changed for the better. And then we also started to implement things like um, yearly reviews, because in the past, reviews had kind of just been used as like a tool for when things were wrong, almost a reprimand. You should have a check-in. You should know when you're doing a good job. And something like a review should not be feared because it's not just the verbal, hey, you know, you're doing great work. It's something on paper to prove, hey, you have done this, 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 and this. Again, like revisiting the things that you've accomplished. I think that every staff needs to know that too. And they need to see how far they've come and they need to have it written down for their records. So when they move on, because people will, right? And you should support them. They can take that with them and be like, hey, look, this is what I can do. You know, you'd mentioned that you've had some really wonderful successes throughout the crisis and throughout the, uh, you know, the growth that you guys have seen. What would you consider is your big challenge that you're facing right now? We have a couple of buildings that are connected together. The one that I'm sitting in is a 1909 Carnegie Library building, and it's beautiful and we love it, but it's made out of sandstone and it hasn't had exactly the right kind of maintenance for a number of years. So we have some pretty massive repairs to do to the exterior because the rock is just crumbling away and, you know, $600,000 worth of work. That's about two years of my operating budget. So it's not something I just have tucked away, right? That's definitely a challenge. However, <clears throat> I think that that's sometimes the physical stuff is easier to tackle because you can you can just start knocking it out in pieces. I think beyond that, our other challenge is kind of where do we go from from here? You know, especially after getting this national medal, it's like okay, cool. So. Now what's our big goal? Because that wasn't even on our radar as a goal. But then once it came into our line of sight, it became pretty priority for us. Um, so I, I think the next thing actually is the reaccreditation process again. And it's such an in-depth process that it requires about a two-year time period of actual work and back and forth to get there. And on a more personal level, it would benefit the museum, but this is a project that is like mine near and dear to my heart is I have been trying to write a book for about 10 years and it's sitting in a crate underneath the chair in my office and I want to get that done. We always ask that uh, our guests recommend a book podcast or resource. I mean your book's not available yet so give us a second no. choice. Currently um, listening to you on audiobook and I've been kind of taking it slowly one because it's really long and two because I kind of don't want it to end. Um, it's called Braiding Sweetgrass. Oh, I love this book. Isn't yes. it beautiful? She pushes you outside of your comfort zones to consider who you are, what your impact is on the world in a physical sense. So she's a scientist, but she's also coming at it with this perspective because she's Native American. And how do those two different kind of perspectives mesh or not mesh? And what are what are you doing as a human that impacts these topics? It's just been such a good message in my ear, you know, to, to actually stop and consider my impact on the world around me, beyond myself, beyond my children, beyond my museum too. 
what you can actually do. And then just that value for other people and what they're doing or what they have done as well. Sometimes I think in a museum world, we're so used to dealing with things in the past that we could almost forget that they're real people. And that's the, I think, really important part too about having like programming and active modern current stuff because it is that reminder that we only exist because of people, not just to tell old stories, but why does that matter to the people of today and tomorrow and the next generations? There's been a couple of things in kind of recent history that I think have helped me define who I am and who I want to be. I am a very blunt person and I don't want to change that. That is who I am. And I, I, one of my favorite sayings is to say what you mean and mean what you say. And sometimes I have to apologize for what I have said, but I do live by that. I think as women too, we tend to have to justify our directness and that drives me insane. Yes, I'm a very direct person. And if I was a man, that would be, it would be, it would be seen as a leadership quality. Right. But as a woman, yeah. we tend to have to justify it. Well, I'm very blunt or I'm very direct or I, I just, I'm very clear in my communication and here's why. No, right. I'm just being a leader. You know, I do have to remind myself that like people in elected positions, um, they're dealing with a lot on their plates too. And they stepped into that position for some community service and I maybe need to give them some grace. So we kind of went through a period there where things were pretty tense and it's gotten better. And I think the key thing is we have all kind of come back to the table and been like, hey, I'm sorry that I you know, didn't give you the opportunity or I didn't whatever. And I think you're doing a good job. Thank you for your support, that kind of thing. So learning how to have flexibility, because I think I had some rigidity about me before that maybe I didn't offer forgiveness to people, including myself. Um, and I think that's been key, but also in that process, I'm not going to change that I am blunt and straightforward. That is who I am. I want my boys to see that and to not question about why, you know, why is mom that way? It's just going to be accepted that people can be this way, whether you're female or male. And I've also learned, and I'm still working on this. I don't apologize unless I actually need to apologize. And I try to share that message as well with other women around me. Stop saying I'm sorry, especially if you're not sorry, but especially if you haven't done anything to be sorry for. You don't owe that to people. You owe it to yourself to not do that. So I actually have a sticky note on my desk of words not to use. You know, that you want your boys to see that you're a strong, capable woman who can have similar characteristics to that of a man. And it's not a big deal. It's, it's, there is no differential there. You also mentioned the balance between being direct and recognizing when your intention fell flat and the perception was incorrect, right? I talk a lot about that too sometimes, that the difference between intention and perception is like, as a leader, I can have really good intentions, but if I'm perceived as not having those good intentions, mm -hmm. then it's flat, it, it, it's, it, it, yeah. it failed. And I have to figure out how to strategically navigate that conversation. You know, I, we're coming up on our time, Sylvia, and I'm so grateful for the time that we've had. Is there something that I haven't covered with you or that's really important to you that we haven't talked about yet? 
Um, the only other thing, you know, thinking about this conversation coming up, which I've been really looking forward to, by the way, um, you lean on people, you know, especially, you know, I just said, like, don't say, I'm sorry, don't apologize, but also know when you have people around you that are there to support your purpose and that you're working together with and don't be afraid to ask them for their help with sometimes it's just a conversation you know I've been really fortunate there have been people in my life mostly women but there's been a few good too that were unofficial mentors and I'm not even sure some of them realize that they were a mentor to me but they were the people that I learned to call or email and say hey I'm dealing with this situation what's your opinion help me walk through this there's a lot of people out there that are happy to help and they're happy to give that that piece of themselves and utilize that. Well, thank you so much for the time and the stories and getting to know you. Check out the Jim Gatchell sure. Museum. And if you do feel compelled to help, you know, repair that building, there is a big donate yeah. button on the very front page. <laughs> yeah. We're running a fundraiser for that currently. Yeah. And don't forget that the information about Sylvia Bruner and the Jim Gatchell Museum will be in the description of this podcast, along with special links and ways to stay in touch. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today in the Executives Lounge, where we bust open the doors, slam through the ceilings, and make sure that we have a spot at the table and that we are the lounge. I am Christine Fauner, your executive leadership expert, continuously looking for those executive leaders that seek community, continuous learning, and have a desire to find the next adventure. Join us next time. Join our Facebook group, Roam Your Soul, and you can also find us on Instagram, at Roam Your Soul. And don't forget to check out the website for upcoming adventures, www dot roamyoursoul.com. And if you're looking for that next executive level leadership coach, you can find me at roamyoursoul.com slash Christine Fawner Coaching.